0: Bum-bum-ba-dum-bum With the comic book couples counseling podcast, I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm
1: Brad Gullickson.
0: And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. In this episode, we're uniting the seven with jean jeans and Mariah, as seen in Steve Orlando and Riley Rosmo's Martian Manhunter identity. And we're applying Dr. Catherine Shear, M.D., and the Center for Complicated Grief's healing milestones and derailers. ...to their relationship woes.
1: Aw, yeah, you've just wandered into Uniting the Seven, a podcast event, listeners. We're starting over. This
0: is episode one. All of the characters you love are dead and replaced with robot
1: clones. No, 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 we're not starting over. Technically, technically, Lisa... We're in the middle of the Uniting a Seven podcast event because we have partnered with seven other righteous podcasts to dissect and analyze seven critical members of the Justice League of America. And yes, we have Martian Manhunter, but four other podcasts have already discussed four other heroes. Comic Book Keepers discussed The Flash, First Issue Club discussed Aquaman, Uh, The Oblivion Pod discussed Superman, and the effin' nerds, they're hanging out with our pal Green Arrow right now.
0: So we're not in crisis?
1: Not of Infinite Earths, Lisa, but maybe an identity crisis. a One, because we are covering Martian Manhunter identity, as you've already mentioned. But also because we are trying to live up to the reputations of these other really cool podcasts. So after you get done listening to this episode, you can continue the Justice League conversation with the Short Box podcast and Green Lantern next week. And then the final week, the Wednesday poll list will be concluding the Justice League conversation with Batman. And then all of the seven will have been united.
0: Oh, I could have sworn I felt a rebirth coming on. I guess it's something I ate. (laughs)
1: Lisa had me press pause before she (laughs) delivered that joke. And she said, look, I'm going to say something. And if it's too stupid, you can edit it out. And guess what, Lisa? Nope, this is staying in.
0: It's so stupid. I went the whole 180 (laughs) to like, it's so stupid. You can't cut it out. No, you can't
1: cut it out. Uh, All right. So yeah, Unite the Seven, a podcasting event. This is something that I'm really, um, I'm surprised to be a part of. I I was honestly like, shocked and chuffed when the Oblivion Pod asked for our inclusion in this epic conversation, and I'm really proud to partake in it.
0: Yeah, Brad and I have really been feeling the love with the online comics podcast community, and it has just been
1: the best. Yeah, I think sometimes fan culture, oh, I hate that term, Ugh. gets a bad rap, you know, because of all the toxic a-holes that are out there. But those toxic a-holes aren't actually a part of fan culture. You know, my experience on the online space and with the podcast community is that we are all so incredibly enthusiastic and passionate individuals, and we just want to share our love for all of these crazy characters and worlds and storylines, and podcasts like comic book keepers and the short box and everyone involved in the Unite the Seven event, like they take so much pride in elevating these stories, especially comic book stories. And But also they talk movies and stuff too. And and like, if you listen to these podcasts, you won't get that kind of, um, well, that anxiety when you listen to just a bunch of dudes around a table hating on something.
0: Not that a bunch of dudes sitting around a table hating on something, is not legitimate. I'm sure there are tons of sitting around a table hating things podcasts, but that's just not what we're personally interested <laughs> You're in. You're <laughs> so
1: nice, Lisa. You know, I like, I'm just not in a place where I want to hear negativity. Mm-hmm. And so I do think like critique and criticism is important. You know, we shouldn't just like love things. Like if you see something that you don't agree with or something that doesn't necessarily connect to you, if you discuss it in a critical way, but also in a compassionate way and understand that these are stories made by people with human feelings, just like you, then I think there is absolutely value there. But that, Toxicity that can sometimes get um, the spotlight on, mm-hmm. you know, especially on places like Twitter and, and, and other social media platforms. Like, I, I we need to purge purge that negativity from our experience, and especially our online experience.
0: I think there is something in the human brain that does get attracted to that negativity where like you see something on twitter and you feel like this rush of rage and all of this like momentum and you feel like you kind of get that terrier feeling where you're just mm-hmm. like i just need to shake it and rip at it and tear at it and and focus on it a- and i think that it's just like a maturation pro- process of going like i feel that rush of emotion and that momentum towards the negative, but I recognize like, this isn't serving me, this isn't serving the community, and like, I'm a huge advocate of conmariing your feed, (laughs) where if somebody posts something, or you get a podcast in your, you know, subscribes, that um, brings out that kind of- um, Rage,
1: that monster?
0: Yeah, like, just going, okay, I'm going to mute this person or block this person or unsubscribe or just go, if I see this word in in my feed, I'm just not going to look at it. Maybe I'll block it.
1: Yeah, what do you say? You tend your garden on Twitter? You have to find the words that uh, bring up conversations that you want nothing to be a part of and you mute those words. We mute so many words on our Twitter feed so that we can have a place where when we log on, it brings us joy and not frustration. And you know, I log on to Twitter or I just log on. When I log on, I'm looking to discover things. Mm. I come to the comic book space to find new stories to read. And if I'm going on there and that is not what I am achieving, well then I need to get back to that garden, start meeting some words, start blocking some people, and making sure that the place that I have um, online is a place that I wanna be in.
0: And the beautiful thing about tending your garden And removing from it those things that aren't bringing you joy and entertainment and enthusiasm is that those things that do bring you joy and make you so happy will fill that space. Yes. It's not like if you remove the negativity from your feed. It's blank. It's blank. No. Um, You find your community you find the people that you do want to interact with and and now we're at the place where our garden is really yielding fruits of friendship and collaboration. Yeah, you
1: have this Unite the Seven podcast event, right? So you have Comic Book Keepers and First Issue Club and Oblivion Pod, The F and Nerds, The Short Box and The Wednesday poll List. And guys, we're gonna have links to all of their episodes in our show notes. Please seek them out. Go listen to these other conversations. See how they discuss their characters in their way and how it differs from what we do. Like- There's so much perspective to explore here and good free content. So if you like what we do, support these other podcasts, revel in the Justice League with Unite the Seven, and uh, let us know how that experience is for you. Let We want to talk to you about these other podcasts as well. So tweet at us, tweet at these other podcasts. Let's have a larger continuing conversation about the Justice League beyond this Martian Manhunter chat that we're about to have.
0: I now feel the compulsion to... Shout out other comic book podcasts that I love. Yeah, do it. Uh, We just guested on AIPT. We love those guys. David
1: and Nathan, thank you. So
0: rad. Um, Brad recently was on the Amazing Spider Talk. That's a great podcast. You probably already subscribed to it. Also, the Poll Box had us on. Thank you very much. The Comic Book Page podcast collaborated with us. We love that so much. We have shining stars that we are pointing out to going like, when are we gonna collaborate with these people? (laughs) Like, Bitches on Comics, or Girls Talk Comics. Yeah,
1: Cerebrocast, the best X-Men podcast around.
0: All of those podcasts are a blind subscribe. Yeah, yeah. Just add them, add them to your, whatever your podcast thing is, and give them a listen.
1: And if you have other podcasts that you appreciate the way that you hopefully appreciate comic book couples counseling, let us know, because we're always seeking more podcasts to add to our own feeds.
0: We never not want to have a podcast in our ears. That's the realist. I
1: mean, yes, that is absolutely true. Lisa wakes up listening to podcasts and she goes to sleep listening to podcasts while we are both sleeping. Lisa's uh, (laughs) earbuds are constantly going and I'm hearing strangers just chit-chatting in my bedroom. And they infect my dreams.
0: Well, if I don't have the podcast going in my ears, I do have an inside my brain podcast. Oh no, that I that is going all of the time. That I gotta I gotta drown out.
1: Yeah, the worry brain. It's a bastard.
0: Yep, zero stars yeah, for that podcast. Yeah. no
1: no <laughs> love on Apple Podcasts for the worry brain. But we gotta get into uh, John Jones or Jean Jones. Jean Jones. Do
0: you say John Jones or Jason Jones? <sighs> I
1: mean, I don't know what I say after reading this comic book because they go. out. Out of their way to give you a pronunciation which is yet another spelling of his name using those apostrophes. So, uh, you know, in the in the comic normally it's J apostrophe O N Z Z, but then in the pronunciation as described here, it's J Z apostrophe.
0: I think it's tricky because the letter J has so many different pronunciations. What I imagine it is is like like the French, like je t'aime, like mm. that extended sound. And so that's what I've been using, so, which I think I've infected you with. And now it's what you say.
1: So it's Jean Jones. Jean
0: Jones. So you get like a J sound, but with a little bit of a fricative Z in there.
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to try to stick with Jean Jones.
0: It sounds to me like you're putting a little extra something, something in there. And I like it.
1: Thanks. Now Lisa, before reading Martian Manhunter Identity, what was your relationship with Jean Jones?
0: When I think of Jean Jones, I think of him in The New Frontier. Yeah. But I think of him in the film adaptation of The New Frontier that scene where he is sitting in front of the television yes. and he's turning into like Bugs Bunny and stuff. He's he, like absorbing uh human culture. Yeah, he
1: becomes like the Groucho Marx as well. Like that sequence is straight from Darwin Cook's comic, mm-hmm. which we've both read. Yes. And it's one of our like collective favorite comics, and we highly recommend it. Uh when I think Martian Manhunter, I also think about that interpretation in that comic book. And in the film, that scene is wonderful, but Miguel Ferrar as the voice of of Martian Manhunter. like That's the voice that I hear when I read this comic book.
0: Oh, same. For me, what I find so beautiful about the Martian Manhunter character in the context of New Frontier is that he has this outsider perspective and reverence mm. for the human race that I feel like sometimes we who are like in it are, are just seeing like, unflattering mirrors of ourselves. Yeah,
1: I think of Martian Manhunter as the Spock of Justice League Mm -hmm. or the data of Justice League, where he is able to look from a bird's eye view and comment on the flaws of humanity, but also what we do so well uh, and and I think that is a perspective that I certainly gravitate towards in fiction in general. And so when you read Justice League comics that have Martian Manhunter in them, I'm always kind of wanting to follow that dude around. And it's kind of a shame that there aren't more comics where John Jones is the focus.
0: Mm, I feel like this interpretation in identity is even a little different.
1: Oh, it's a. I would say it's a lot different, and I struggled with it initially.
0: Mm, well, because he does have a reverence for humanity, I feel, but it's more focused on the individual that is John Jones. Yeah,
1: and it comes from a much darker origin, and much darker history. The, a place
0: of like profound shame.
1: Yeah, yeah. So his this like Martian Manhunter identities John Jones is not the typical origin for the character. Like in this comic, he was a corrupt cop on Mars. And that's like, that's a lot to take in as a fan of the New Frontier version of Martian Manhunter.
0: I actually don't feel super familiar with the origin story of Martian Manhunter. Well,
1: I think New Frontier gives you enough of Martian Manhunter, like that is basically the post-crisis concept of Martian Manhunter. And that's enough to have in your head before you enter into Martian Manhunter identity to see how this radically alters that perception. But if we wanna go back to his actual publication history, the Martian Manhunter debuted in a backup story in Detective Comics number 225, November 1955. Why did I go 225 and not 255? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm reading. Uh, That story was called The Strange Experiment of Dr. Ertl. And it was written by Joseph Samoxin and illustrated by Joe Serta. The character is a green-skinned extraterrestrial humanoid from Mars who was pulled to Earth by an experimental teleportation beam constructed by Dr. Saul Ertl. In subsequent tellings of this story, Ertl. will die in this moment. But in the original backup tale, Ertl is merely blinded. And Martian Manhunter isn't even the last of his race in this story. Uh, He's expecting to return to Mars once Martian technology advances to a point where they can zap him back. But until that fateful day, John Jones has to Put on the persona of John Jones, a detective from Middletown USA.
0: I want a side gig where I just come up with fictional names for small town USA. <laughs> like, like, ooh, how about
1: Blandsville? Oh, Blandsville. How about Genericston? You are ready for the Silver Age, <laughs> Lisa. Middle
0: States. Yeah, or
1: Smallville. (laughs) You know, Martian Manhunter, like most characters from this period, took many years and many comic books to develop his character and his abilities. You know, the addition of precognitive skills in Detective Comics number 226 is quickly followed by telepathy and flight, atomic vision, super hearing, and many other powers, including phasing and shape shifting. And his fear of fire initially only occurred when he was in his Martian form. But like Superman and the way he went from leaping tall buildings to flying and how kryptonite didn't come in till the radio show uh, over decades, they've, played around and they molded the character and his powers and his abilities into what we know of him today. So when you look at it through that lens and you read something like Martian Manhunter identity, you shouldn't necessarily like resist it immediately because this is a character like Superman, like Green Arrow, like Black Canary that didn't come out of the gate fully formed. And it took many writers to create the version that you fell in love with in The New Frontier, or the Justice League of America cartoon. So when you encounter a reinterpretation like Martian Manhunter identity, it's not a blasphemous act. It's just another way of shifting that point of view a little bit and contributing another little touch to this tapestry that is John Jones.
0: I know that uh, characters changing over time, particularly the characters we love can be like a touchy subject, <laughs> but it's also what I love about comics. Yeah. The fact that these characters that we love so much are essentially like made in clay, and each author and artist who touches it is going to change it a little bit. And being able to like see the through line from the beginning of an idea to this character that we have grown to know and and love intimately, it's just like so awesome.
1: Yeah, uh, comic book characters like human beings. Like it's it took it took an evolution to get here, and I think it's something that we should celebrate. We should celebrate the many hands that touch our favorite characters, and the things that we don't like. They tend to fall away. Like those bits of clay tend to dry up and fall off. And the stuff that really connects with the community sticks around and only time will tell if Orlando and Rosmo's version of Martian Manhunter will last. But from our perspective, identity offers us so much rich material to explore, comic book relationships and our own relationship. But before we can dive into identity, we do need to talk about our love expert because Lisa and I are not experts, we seek help. So Lisa, who are we reaching out to this week?
0: Our love expert for John Jones and Mariah is Dr. Katherine Shear, an internist, psychiatrist, professor of psychiatry at the Columbia School of Social Work, and the founding director of the Center for Complicated Grief. This relationship is another prime example of why Brad and I rely on the work of our love experts to help us do the armchair superhero counseling, because we have no qualifications, just our limited life experience. 14 years of marriage. (laughs) The microphones may be pointed at our mouths, (laughs) but we are speaking from our you-know-whats. Lucky for our patients, they are fictional, so we can't screw them up. But this relationship in particular, we feel entirely out of our depth because this will be a conversation primarily about grief and the relationship we have with a person after they're gone. Brad and I have been particularly lucky. Neither of us have lost a partner. We still have all of our parents and I have all of my siblings. We have lost our grandparents, which has been varying degrees of hard, but we haven't had to process grief of an immediate family member. Since this is a one pod stand, we don't have four episodes to process an entire book on grief. So I wanted to find a resource that had reputable and actionable advice for people who, like John Jones, are in a state of grief and are looking for tools to process it. We also want to be extra sensitive to those listening who might be processing grief right now in the present tense. While for us, this conversation about losing a loved one is fictional and hypothetical, we know that for others it is all too real. And we don't want to be speaking from authority that by having this story, we know by any measure what this type of of grief must feel like. Yeah. Dr. Shear has done some really groundbreaking work in the field of grief therapy. Grief sometimes gets lumped in with depression, which it really isn't. A main aspect of grief is yearning, which is not part of depression, and antidepressants are not effective for a grieving person. Dr. Shear has developed a form of therapy, originally called complicated grief therapy, now called prolonged complicated grief therapy, that has outperformed other forms of therapy for the treatment of grieving persons in clinical trials. She was also instrumental in getting the diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder Recognized by the World Health Organization in 2018 and in 2020, the diagnosis was approved by the American Psychiatric Association to be added to upcoming editions of the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Disorders. The Center for Complicated Grief was established in 2013 to inform clinicians as well as the public about prolonged grief disorder in order to improve the lives of those suffering from it. The website for the Center of Complicated Grief has a ton of resources for people who are in a state of grief or perhaps are anticipating an impending state of grief, and it is very current. There are even special resources for those who are in a state of grief during COVID-19. If you feel that you or someone you love may benefit from these sorts of resources, they are easily found at complicatedgrief.columbia.edu, and Brad will include a link in our show notes. The article we'll be using to help Jean is actually a PDF I found on their resources page. It is entitled, Healing Milestones, What to Expect from Grief, and it includes a COVID-19 addendum. It is really succinct, two pages, double-sided, but it addresses some of the typical concerns of a bereaved person, dispels some misconceptions, and provides two really handy acronyms that help you remember which grieving behaviors are productive and which are stalling, so that a grieving person can self-monitor their progress to a certain extent. One of the misconceptions of grief is that it goes away or it is something that you move on from. That is not the case. When someone dies, there's not a day where you don't feel their goneness. The center equates it to a physical wound. When the loss first occurs, it is throbbing and demands all of your attention— But over time, the healing process takes place and the pain subsides until eventually the grief runs quietly in the background and the bereaved returns to a state of well-being and functionality. Occasionally, the sadness will return, particularly around dates on the calendar, life events, or unexpected reminders. But the feelings will fall in the realm of bittersweet, both difficult and good. Oh, and those stages of grief you hear about in pop culture—denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, also known as the Kubler-Ross model—not a thing, never empirically proved, and have long been rejected by psychiatry. The two acronyms provided by this paper are intended to act as grief guides, so we can use them to identify some of Jean's grieving behaviors and discern if those behaviors are healing milestones or derailers. So the milestones are behaviors that help the pain and grief recede into the background. They can be done in any particular order that feels good to the grieving person so that their healing can unfold naturally. The word is healing. And it's like those acrostic poems that you did in elementary school. Mm. Like Brad is B, bodacious, R,
1: Radical, (laughs) A, awesome, D, dope.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, So... The word is, once again, healing. So H is honor your loved one and yourself. Discover your own interests and values. E is ease emotional pain. Open yourself to emotions, both painful and pleasant ones. Trust that you can deal with emotional pain. It doesn't control you. A is accept grief and let it find a place in your life. L is learn to live with reminders of your loss. I is integrate memories of your loved one. Let them enrich your life and help you learn and grow. N is narrate stories of the death for yourself. Share them with others. And G is gather others around you. Connect with your community. Let people in and let them support you.
1: I like that last letter the most. Mm. Uh, And I think it speaks to what we were discussing at the start of this episode, building a community and leaning on that community when you need it.
0: I look at these letters and I um, immediately see how we kind of intuitively integrate these behaviors into the grieving process Mm -hmm. there are a lot of like traditional and ritualistic structures built around some of these behaviors like wakes and funerals and creating and adding to memorializations but for jean jones being on another planet separated from his family he doesn't have a lot of these structures in place. And he can't do some of those rituals we anticipate when we're planning on grieving the people that we love. And that's why I think that the COVID-19 addendum to this is so important because at the height of lockdown, a lot of these structures had to be removed, right? We couldn't go into the hospitals with our loved ones, after they passed away, we couldn't gather in the same way that we were anticipating.
1: But like you said, we found a way to connect anyway. And we had a friend who sadly lost his mother and we were able to have a virtual Zoom wake. And that was... You know, not the same as gathering in person, but it did provide that necessary outlet for community in this moment of tragedy.
0: But just like there are behaviors that make progress in the grief process, there are the derailers. These are behaviors that prolong the pain of grieving. This paper stresses that these feelings are going to come up in the period of acute grief right after the person has passed away. And the way they address what to do when derailers come up, I don't think I can say any better. So I'm just going to read directly from the paper if that's okay. Do it. This section describes common derailers. It's important to be aware that all of these occur naturally in the aftermath of a loss. When you notice them, be sure to practice self-compassion. Then just take a few minutes to consider how you might gently and respectfully resolve them and set them aside. You do this in the service of inner peace to honor your ongoing relationship with the person who died and free the healing process. To find and deal with derailers, consider that all of us must learn to accept what we cannot change and decide how to best channel our energies towards ways that we can learn and grow towards acting where we might make a difference. That was the end of the quote, so the acronym is the word derailers, and here's what they are. D. Doubt that you did enough for the person who died. E. Embracing ideas about grief that make you want to change it or control it. R. Repeatedly imagining scenarios where the death didn't happen or happened differently, if only thinking. A. Anger and bitterness you can't resolve or let go of. I, insistent belief that this death was unfair or wrong or shouldn't have happened. L, lack of faith in the possibility of adapting to the loss and having a promising future. E, excessive avoidance of reminders of the loss. Hmm. R, rejecting support from others, unable to let others help, feeling hurt and alone. S, survivor's guilt that is stopping you from experiencing joy and satisfaction. If you are a grieving person, this paper encourages you, and we do too, to reach out to your healthcare provider at any point in your grief, but especially if you're feeling stuck in your grief for a period over six months, and your grief is inhibiting your functioning in a way that you cannot move forward with your own life. There are self-diagnostic tools on the center's website and other resources, but truly, if you have mental health concerns and you don't already have a direct line to a mental health specialist, bring it up with your general practitioner or go to urgent care. Mental health is human health, and these individuals are trained to provide care for you. Yes, as I go over these two acronyms, my like gears are already churning for how we can apply this for John Jones and his continuing relationship with Mariah after she's gone. Um, but first, there's a little something we got to do.
1: Yeah, there's like this is a weird transition because <laughs> we're dealing with such a heavy topic. And so to just jump into our words of affirmation with our little song seems weird, but that's what we're going to do. Lisa, it's time for words of affirmation. Not So, for first time listeners who may just be joining us for the Unite of the Seven podcast event, I think we should probably explain what the words of affirmation portion of the show actually is. This is our way to give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. We curate and use these affirmations ourselves, and we're more than happy to pass them on to you. These particular affirmations come from Louise Hay, Oprah Winfrey, and Yursa Daly Ward. And while we are extremely grateful to our patrons and appreciate the incredible support that they provide for comic book couples counseling, we would also never ask anyone to support us financially if they cannot afford to do so. And if you fall into that category, that's great. We have tons of free content on the main feed to enjoy and these affirmations that we're about to dish out to these three patrons, you can take them and apply them to your mirror in your bathroom and look at them every day and hopefully you can gain some power from them. That's
0: what I do. I have uh, a cup of those like pens specifically for writing on mirrors for whenever we find these amazing affirmations. These three, Brad resourced himself, and I think they're pretty empowering.
1: Yeah, I like them a lot too. So uh, let's settle our mind. Let's get into a nice, calm, mental state so that we can be open to receiving some words of affirmation, some much-needed words of affirmation.
0: David... You are in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing.
1: Veronica Gonzalez. The chance to love and be loved exists no matter where you are.
0: Liz H. You make way for the unprecedented and watch reality rearrange yourself.
1: Yeah, I agree. I really like those. I know that I went and found them, but I think those really... Um, work well with where I am right now in my place.
0: They're what you call keepers.
1: Yeah. Uh, so let's get into the comic itself. Martian Manhunter, Volume 5, Issues 1 through 12, published by DC Comics between February 2019 and April 2020. It's written by Steve Orlando, illustrated by Riley Rosmo, colored by Ivan Plasencia. uh, (laughs) Placentia?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. All right.
1: And lettered by Darren Bennett. Here's the basic plot taken from the DC website. The acclaimed team of writer Steve Orlando and artist Riley Rosmo behind Batman the Shadow, Batman Knight of the Monster Men, re-teamed for a reinvention of the Manhunter from Mars in this twisted, unexpected series. Back on Mars, Jean Jones was about as corrupt as a law enforcer can be, and when a reckoning comes for his entire society, he'll get a second chance he doesn't want or deserve. One shocking murder, and an unexpected fragment of the Mars he lost will change his life and the course of the Earth forever.
0: Okay, so that's some pretty typical back-of-the-book copy. They use a lot of exclamation points, so <laughs> they they clearly are showing a lot of enthusiasm for the contents of this book. Um, but the question I have is around the word reinvention. Mm. Like, as a first-time or, or less-experienced Martian Manhunter Reader, I want to understand, okay, what exactly is being reinvented here?
1: Well, I'm by no means an expert on John Jones's mythology either, uh, but I do believe what Orlando and Rosmo are contributing to his mythos is this idea that on Mars, yes, he was a police officer, but he was a training day Denzel Washington corrupt cop kind of police officer, right? So I believe that is new to the mythology. And also this idea that on Earth, they don't say this in the back copy, but on Earth, there already was a John Jones. And it's a coincidence that John Jones, when he is teleported to Earth uh, and when he goes looking for uh, a human host to hide in, he encounters a police detective named John Jones who dies in the line of duty. And to honor that person, he takes that person's form.
0: So in Martian Manhunter's original origin story, John Jones was a person that he just made up out of whole cloth. Yes. From watching a lot of cop television. Yes, But in this case, he is taking over the life of someone who is... Killed.
1: Yeah, and I'm looking forward to exploring that concept as well because that deals with grief in a different way than the loss of his family, and and that is also baked into the DNA of Martian Manhunter's backstory. Is that there was this telepathic plague that wiped out the Martian race, including his wife Myra and his daughter Kim.
0: So grief has always been integral to the Martian Manhunter character, but now all of this guilt is added in.
1: Yeah, they add shame to his character. And in some ways, like it reminds me of Peter Parker and Spider-Man and how, you know, because Peter Parker did not act in a noble way and he allowed the burglar to escape, uh, that started a chain of events that killed Uncle Ben. And so he takes on the heroic mantle to honor his uncle. There's something like that going on here in this new retelling with Jean Jones,
0: which we're totally going to get into. So let's invite Martian Manhunter and the memory of his wife onto our couch and let's get into session. So the first issue opens with Jean Jones narrating and the text is I have a confession to make, Diane. The Martian Manhunter is not a hero, not yet. And the
1: not yet comes on the second page. The first page of this book is the apocalypse that is occurring on Mars with the plague. And we see John Jones in the center of all this burning flesh. And then when you turn the page to not yet, we see John Jones, the police detective, waking up. And going to work, right? Getting dressed, putting his badge on. Let's do this.
0: So there's actually a lot of wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff just on this first page yeah. flip, where we go from his past on Mars and the horror that that was to his present ish, mm. because that's not actually John Jones. That's Jean Jones in John Jones's body. Right. But then. Uh, Once you've read this entire run, you realize that the narration that is happening actually comes from issue five.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of play with time in this comic. You have flashbacks within flashbacks, and then you have flash forwards so like mapping it all out had to have been totally insane for Orlando and Rosmo, but it's rewarding on second read and on first read, you just kind of have to like go with it and follow the emotions.
0: Well, it feels very stream of consciousness yes. because Jean Jones is trying to reconcile and <laughs> he's trying to bury his past, but also reconcile with his past. And, Everything he's doing in the present is all infused with that back narrative. So to me it feels actually very true to to an identity crisis where uh-huh. you're going like, how can I be myself in the present despite this person I was in my past and that I'm replicating hiding?
1: the trauma of grief right and how your own timeline with the person you lost gets jumbled
0: mm-hmm. I think the number one thing I wanna focus on with these first two pages is that it's clear that Jean Jones is dealing with one of the derailers, and that's the S, which is survivor's guilt. Mm. I think that what this, these pages are showing us is that when he dreams at night, he's dreaming of his home planet in flames. Well,
1: and like as a first page... This is a scream. We are seeing his worst moment as our introduction to his character.
0: And paired with that text from issue five, we know he, he is carrying this inside and feels this need to confess it later. So we know that his journey is going to lead to him emotionally opening up to Diane and and, can, and admitting that he's been hiding something.
1: And I think like what you're seeing in this first page is another derailer where he is going through the if only process, mm. right? He's replaying his past on a loop, trying to find out how he could have behaved differently to have saved his wife and daughter. But on Earth, in the present tense, starting with page two, He is investigating with his partner, Diane, a series of mysterious murders and a kidnapping of a little girl. And what becomes quickly apparent is that he cannot be the cop that he needs to be for this investigation until he processes his grief and the trauma of his Martian history.
0: And reconciling with that Martian history becomes all the more urgent when at one of the most gruesome crime scenes, he finds this pink fright foam, and that fright foam only comes from Martians. So he's going to have to investigate this crime on Earth while hiding that he's a Martian investigating a Martian crime. This obviously complicates things because his rapport with Diane is bouncing ideas back and forth, solving earthly human crimes, but now, There is this other element to it that he has to resolve without exposing who he truly is to this partner he would otherwise confide in and collaborate with. So he's been living this compartmentalized life.
1: The impression that I have is that he is actively trying to bury the horror of his past while he is John Jones. But this case forces him to confront that history that he's been trying to bury, but has been failing at burying. And as horrible as these crimes are, they're almost like a gift where he can finally like release himself of this pain. And then of course there's the revelation of who he is To Diane. And so once they can be honest with each other, now Johns can actually do some healing, right? He needs a group, even if that group is of two him and Diane. And I think what you get from that healing milestone from Dr. Shear is that solitary existence is the enemy of healing. Right, you can't do it alone. He needs Diane.
0: In this first issue, we also get flashbacks to his life on Malachalandra before the big Holocaust event happens. Look at you
1: just throwing off Malachalandra. Malakala-
0: <laughs> oh, dude, I've been practicing.
1: Oh, I've I'm impressed. <laughs> she means Mars, people.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the actual name of Mars. But we get a glimpse into the double life that he's leading. So he feels like he doesn't make enough money from his meager salary as a manhunter. So he's taken on some after school activities. He is a heavy for some crime bosses and he's out collecting protection money. But his wife and child have no idea that he's doing this. And they believe that he is like a good, upstanding cop. We also get to see what the sex life (laughs) of Martians is. And it's like the sex life of humans, both gross and beautiful. (laughs) When he and Mariah get busy. For them, to become one is not a metaphor. It
1: looks like an image from John Carpenter's The Thing, Mm -hmm. when the alien is melding into different types, or is like caught in mid-process of melting into different individuals.
0: So it's like the the true bonding of form, but also
1: minds, minds and thought. Which is troubling when you're a corrupt cop.
0: That's right. So each Martian has in their brain something called their hermitage, where they keep their most private thoughts. In your immediate family, the expectation is that you share your hermitage. So after he and Mariah are done bonding, she goes like, hey, I'm getting vibes from you that you want to make another child. And he's like, yeah, don't you? Don't you want to have a second child with me? And she goes, not until you share your hermitage with me because not sharing your hermitage with me shows that that there's this lack of trust and you need to be able to trust me with your secrets. But he, he makes all of these excuses. He's like, you know, I'm a cop. I see terrible things. I'm just protecting you from the horrors of my work. And she's like, yeah, well, I'm not impressed by that because I'm a doctor who works in the emergency ward. I see horrible things too, and I I share my hermitage with you. She ends that conversation by saying, Jean, you can trust me with your burden. What we have, it's stronger than any horror. So this concept of the hermitage and him not opening himself up completely to her, comes up in several flashbacks between Jean and Mariah. And it is clearly a sticking point in their marriage. And it's a pattern of behavior we also see in his relationship with Diane, where he has these insecurities with himself. I don't make enough money as a manhunter. Like, I can't provide for my family. But instead of saying to Mariah, like, I don't feel like I'm doing enough, he goes like, I'm going to spare Mariah from that insecurity I have with myself and take care of this my own way internally, secretly.
1: We've talked about this in the past, but any time you try to manage your truth before you deliver it to your partner is a mistake. And it's something that I do all the time where I try to like, okay, what am I feeling? Ooh, this is how I wanna actually feel. Let me rewrite my feelings and then I'm gonna let Lisa know how I feel after this revision. Yeah, that doesn't work.
0: We get to hear a lot of rationalizations he makes to Mariah about why he keeps his hermitage separate from her. First, it's the, well, I'm protecting you from the horrors of my work. I'm sure he believes that that's at least partially true. Mm -hmm. Then later, he goes like, oh, I'm keeping my hermitage from you because this Hieronymus curse is going around and it's infecting the thought stream, so we should all like quarantine our secrets from each other. And he's
1: not wrong. And he's
0: not wrong there either. It's like another rationalization. Yeah. But what he's doing in actuality is trying to control her perception
1: of him. He
0: goes like, for me to be a good father, I need to be a good provider first.
1: Yeah, and so in that trying to control his perception is this sense of shame, Mm -hmm. right? Because he knows how he is behaving as a heavy for these drug dealers is not right.
0: And he knows that because he is trying to control her perception of him being a good provider. He has sacrificed her perception of him being a fully honest person or a person who trusts her completely. So for him to be seen one way, he throws another aspect, another virtue completely under the bus.
1: And the tragedy of the relationship is that the truth would maybe have never come out without the plague. But then once Myra sees her husband for who he actually is and what he's actually been up to, the plague steals her life and their relationship is never allowed to evolve beyond that moment. Who knows what would have happened once their deception had, once John's deception had been revealed, you know, maybe they could have reconciled, maybe they would have separated, but, the conversation would continue. And unfortunately this conversation ends here, but then you look at John Jones and Diane and the car crash at the end of issue one, where now she learns who her partner actually is. She doesn't die. Now his truth is exposed once again. And now he has an opportunity to actually lay all of himself bare to another person, something he has not done in a very long time, if ever.
0: It's actually completely understandable why John Jones repeats those patterns of behavior with Diane, because when Mariah found out the truth about her husband, that he had been cooperating and consorting with criminals, she was horrified and disgusted and then immediately burst into flames. Right. So that instance acted as an affirmation of his insecurity. See what happens when people see what a terrible person you are? They hate you and then they die. So when he is in this car crash fire with Diane and he's having this thing happen again, his mask completely ripped off, his hermitage opened, he is not John Jones, the good cop. He is the Martian manhunter, betrayer of his family and planet. He he struggles with, do I open this conversation about my past with Diane or do I use my powers and mind wipe her and continue this lie that I am John Jones, the good cop? So I'd like to take a moment to do an inventory of the derailers Mm. that are weighing down John Jones's grief process. Definitely D, doubt that you did enough for the person who died. That's there in a big way. I, the insistent belief that the death of Kim and Mariah was unfair and wrong and shouldn't have happened. E, excessive avoidance of reminders of the loss. So he has been hiding... In another person's body. Mm. So even his person, even when he looks in the mirror, he doesn't see his Martian-ness because his Martianness is a, a trigger for those memories. And then S, the survivor's guilt. Oh, skipped R, rejecting support from others by keeping his past Definitely. a secret from Diane. And then S, the survivor's guilt for being the last surviving Martian. Following the car crash, Diane did pull his carcass out of the flames, but she's in conflict because she finds out this person she was with that she believed to be her partner is actually a complete stranger. This Jean Jones who has been parading around in the personage of someone that she loves but they do have to find Ashley, who is the child who is missing, who has been kidnapped. So they reach this understanding of like, you can continue to be John Jones and parade around, but once we find Ashley, your secret is not safe with me anymore because the trust between us has been destroyed. As they're doing the investigation, however, this trust begins rebuilding because she witnesses him really care about the case in a way that is familiar to her, that does feel like her old partner. And so they decide that to rebuild trust John Jones has to be has to come completely clean and tell her about his past and he agrees to do do what he's never done before completely open up and expose all of his secrets and he tells her about what it was like for him to take over John Jones's life so when he met John Jones as an entity was in the last second of John's life. John was investigating a serial killer and the serial killer drew a gun on him and shot him in the chest. John had telepathically sensed a fellow cop in danger and didn't get there in time to save John, but did get there in in time to, to free all of these other captives of this serial killer. And he then carried John's body to a mountaintop and began a Martian death ritual. So the the death ritual is that on Mars, after a person's death, someone else continues their life in a way by taking on their shape and then receiving the, the, the love and the grief of the people around them. And this is how Martians honor someone's life. So he initially felt like he was honoring John Jones' life by continuing his life for 10 more days. But of course, when those 10 days were over, <laughs> John Jones' love tank was so full from all of this connection with right. humanity that he just decides to keep being John Jones. But I think by doing the death ritual for John Jones, he is, uh, John is procrastinating on doing any kind of death ritual for his wife and his child. So he's kind of shelved that grief mm. to to connect to this grief of a stranger. If we take a moment to look at this Martian death ritual, it actually fulfills a lot of those healing milestones. It H honors the loved one and everybody connected to the loved one. E, it helps ease that emotional pain. G, in a big way, you're gathering those people around you and you're experiencing that grief and sharing that burden together. So I think like he's, it's acting like, his grief process for John Jones is acting like a salve for this other grief that he's avoiding by being in somebody else's body. But it's not actually curing anything. He's not actually treating his own grief.
1: You could see how this ritual would be beneficial to him if others, were taking on the forms of his lost ones. Like, I love the idea of this ritual, but like you say, the way he's using it here for John Jones is a way of passing the buck.
0: Absolutely, and until he was in that car crash, he tells Diane, my plan was to live the rest of John Jones's life, and then at the appropriate age, give him a peaceful right, yeah. death, and then just go back to being invisible and unseen again.
1: Yeah, that obviously didn't happen, He, you know, because he he enjoyed the distraction of John Jones.
0: But now that he has opened up to Diane about this, it opens up the floodgates to all of these other things that he has been storing in his hermitage, and he ultimately does tell Diane what happened on that terrible day.
1: And he's honest about his entire history, including his corrupt life as a Martian manhunter.
0: So by narrating the stories Mm. of his wife and child's death and how he connects that to his downfall, then we get the quote in issue five that, Opened issue one. Martian Manhunter is not a hero, dot, 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 not yet. So now that she knows his story, he's being able to conceptualize this existence where he can continue to be himself and be a good person. In
1: that not yet, is a promise of actual heroism. There is so much hope in that, not yet. And as a reader, I'm not sure if I have that hope with him, Uh, but uh, we're gonna see how it goes here.
0: I think he is well on his way to A, accepting his grief and letting it find a place in his life. And in opening up to Diane, he actually like levels up in their relationship. They reach this new level of honesty and she actually opens up her hermitage to him and exposes some of her grief, her grief for her partner, obviously John Jones, but also her grief from a relationship with a woman named Carol that she felt that she had to keep secret. In his relationship with Mariah, Jean only got to see the horrors of honesty, the disgust and the disappointment. But with Diane, he's getting to bear some of the fruits of honesty, the level of trust and understanding and growth that comes from it.
1: Yeah, and he loves that. And he takes it to the next level by inviting her into his mindscape and they get to battle his demons together mentally. And this is also where we learn what is actually happening with these murder cases in Middleton, where there is this red Martian, Charn, who has been conducting experiments with humans hoping to unlock our genetics, which will allow him to reclaim his fluid shape because he was a high felon. He was imprisoned into one form. And that's like the worst thing that can possibly happen to a Martian to be trapped into a single solid form. And he wants revenge on the Martians, but the Martians are all dead except for Jean Jones. So Jean Jones is his one true enemy right now.
0: And since they are both Martians, he has been... Attacking John Jones on all fronts, psychically and physically. So some of the waking nightmares John Jones has been having about his wife and his child, yeah, were actually the psychic weapons of Charn, not just like his tumultuous soul.
1: Yeah, you know, like that's a little bit of an easy um, solution, and like the way that this comic wraps up is really just through superhero punching.
0: Yeah, so like when the big face-off between Charn and Jon Jones happens inside Jon Jones' psyche and uh, Charn sets up this big like icy landscape of his past and we get to watch jean jones start out as a child and just start punching yeah and so he's punching through his past and this kind of also mirrors the scene he has in his thoughtscape with diane where he's like i've got to face my inner demons which are shame anger and duty how do we face those inner demons we punch them how do we face our past we punch it yeah
1: so i mean they're they're using this the language of superhero comics to find resolution but i think what is most important about these sequences is that he invites diane into his head he exposes his entire being and his entire history to diane and he literally does face down his shame. And yeah, okay, he punches it, but at least he's doing the work.
0: And the result of of that work is that he's no longer going to reside in the body of John Jones. He's now going to be his truthful self to the world and be the Martian Manhunter hero, member of the Justice League, that we know him as today.
1: Right, right. I I do want to talk about that final page a little bit, because I have some questions where, you know, Charn has been slain. He's no longer an issue.
0: Ashley is now fully a Martian. Yeah,
1: so he actually, he's, he's, I mean, she's still human, but he now has, like, another person who knows his physical experience, so he's maybe not the last Martian anymore. But... The three of them, Ashley, Diane and John Jones are staring upward and John is saying, it's time for me to go home. Does does he mean literally to go to Mars? Because like what's up in Mars? They talk about it in the middle of the book. There's nothing up there anymore. There's like a probe that NASA has sent up, but that's it. What is the benefit of going to Mars?
0: I, I, I'm i wondering if it's actually like a. uh Like, it's time for me to go home, like, live as myself in my house on on Earth. Like,
1: like metaphorically home?
0: Yeah, metaphorically, like, he hasn't been home in his own body,
1: Mm. so it's time
0: for him to just be himself. I
1: like that. I don't know if that's what's being said in the last page. Yeah, me
0: neither. It's a little bit like, uh, it's like, it feels like a button, like, And that's our last word on this topic, but it's really obtuse what it's supposed to mean. I mean, I
1: think metaphorically it is saying that Jean is content with who he is now, having exposed himself fully to Diane. And so he's home in that sense. But like, they're all looking upwards. I'm like, are they actually going to Mars? Is it like going to like Arlington National Cemetery up there for him? Like, does he need to go there? Does he need to put his feet on the soil so he can f- let go of his grief or at least of you know take the next step with his grief in the place where all that horror went down.
0: Well, that could be his reaching for an h like re- he wants to honor. memorialize and honor.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think I like that. I, like I it's it's an ending that I need to
0: Have one more issue to see if he actually goes to Mars. No, I think
1: it's I think it's something that I need to th- sit on. I I don't have a total definition of how I should be feeling with that last page right now, having read the comic one and a half times, right? Like, the half times is going through it with you on this podcast. I think that on repeat, Martian Manhunter by Orlando and Rosmo will operate for this character in the same way that Tom King and Mitch Jarrett's Mr. Miracle does for Scott Free and Big Barda. Like, I... I think of these two titles as twins within the DC universe because they both start with their characters at their lowest points. And through the process of telling their story in this fashion, they help pull these characters out of their despair. And so, yeah, I do think they work really, really well together. And uh, I'm going to put them on the shelf right next to each other. At the same time, I think, this ending, as I interpret it right now, is a little neat and tidy. And I would like, you know, as Dr. Shear says, for this book to address grief as something that you never put away. Like it's something that's going to be with Jean Jones forever. And the reality is, writers won't let him put that grief away because that grief is a part of the character. So Orlando and Rosmo kind of give him a nice place to rest at the end of this comic, but whoever takes on Martian Manhunter's story going forward will revisit grief because that's just how it has to be with this character.
0: And one of the markers of healing from grief is this sense of well-being and optimism for the rest of your life with your grief, like running in the background and being part of your narrative. So I think that this book gives us that, and even if we don't completely understand what his next move is, we know that he's continuing on with a sense of hope now that his burden is shared with Diane and Ashley.
1: And I need to do some more reading of Martian Manhunter stories after this. I know this is a relatively recent story, but I need to know, like, is Diane out there in the DC universe? I'd like more stories with her. And I would also like more stories with Ashley. I think there's a lot more story potential here, especially between these three.
0: But I do feel really good ending our session with Jean Jones in this place with his grief. Cause I think that he really has touched on many, if not all of these emotional milestones. I think by continuing his life as the Martian manhunter on earth, he is honoring his loved ones and his past as well as himself. He is now ease. He has a new level of ease in his emotional pain. He's faced some of his inner demons. He realizes that he can feel his feelings and still love himself. I think he's accepted his grief and and enfolded it into his narrative. And his
1: past mistakes.
0: Yeah, he's learning to live with those reminders of his loss and seeing his Martian self in the mirror He's integrated his memories of his loved one. He has narrated his story. He's gathering people around him. If I was to give uh, John Jones some work to take with him to continue his journey, I think I would encourage him to find more ways that he can honor and memorialize his family specifically in this life, even if that means like setting up a place in his home where he has totems and images of his family. He needs an album. Yeah. His time with his family on Mars didn't end as neatly as he would have wanted as a husband and a father. But there's still so much love and so much to celebrate for the life that he had. And I think that that's part of healing as well. Realizing that your mistakes are not the entirety of your narrative. They are just part of your narrative. So I feel like we can end our session with Jean Jones there. I really do think he is in a much better place So now it's time for our moment of reflection. Brad, is there anything from this discussion that you think you'll take with you and take into our marriage?
1: I mean, definitely the aspect of John Jones, who likes to self-edit his feelings and his experience before sharing himself with his wife. You know, I've alluded to uh, being uh, guilty of that in the past, and it is something that uh, I would like to improve on. And I think it's something that I have improved on in our marriage. Definitely. But yeah, like I wish I had a warning system inside my body that told me red alert. You're trying to write a fiction, Uh, just be honest right now. But to do that, you have to be very self-reflective. And I think that's what the whole point of this podcast is, is training and practicing to be self-reflective when those moments occur, when you find yourself writing some BS.
0: I think everybody, I'm hoping, because I relate as well, (laughs) that everybody has these moments of like emotional procrastination Where we go, like, okay, if I tell, if I completely open my hermitage and I tell my entire truth, there's going to have to be a much larger larger conversation that I feel like I don't have the emotional capacity right now for or I don't have the literal time for. Yeah, and
1: I think that is fair. And that is not something that you should condemn yourself when you do find yourself doing that. I just think that if you make a pattern of doing that, and that delaying just continues and continues, continues, it's going to eventually erupt into some major hurt.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, you think about John Jones. Yes. He had plans with both his relationship with Mariah and his relationship with Diane, where you'll go, he was like, well, and I'll just continue lying and hiding this it's for just not the work. rest of my life. Yeah, yeah, you can't
1: do it. You can't do it.
0: <laughs> and for a lot of this conversation, I think we've been talking about grief as in like the capital G grief of losing a spouse or a child or a, a loved one. But we actually have a lot of instances to practice Good grief in small ways. Life is full of minor disappointments or um, not met expectations or personal failures where that leave an emotional wound. And we have to ask ourselves, in caring for this emotional wound, are we, honoring ourselves and the people involved? Are we addressing our emotional pain? Are we accepting what we can't change about the situation? And by practicing the healing milestones in these small instances, then perhaps in these devastating but inevitable grief instances, will do a little bit better. Those muscles will be a little bit stronger and will be better prepared for the inevitable heartbreaks of life.
1: And so was that your biggest takeaway from Martian Manhunter?
0: I think yes. I also had another kind of minor revelation in the back of my mind as I was meditating on these healing milestones is that maybe knowing these milestones, I'll be better prepared when somebody wants to share their grief with me.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that too.
0: Because when um, somebody, like when our friend's mother died or when you hear about someone's terrible diagnosis or something like that, I just find myself at a loss of ways that I can help. And I always go back in my mind to like, well, what would my mom do? Whenever there was any kind of tragedy, my mom would be like, okay, we have to bring so-and-so a ham because their husband died or whatever.
1: Well, I mean, we were talking about our buddy who lost his mother and, you know, he reached out to me recently and thanked me for all the various like anniversaries that I take note of regarding my grandfather Uh, World War II vet. So, like, whenever there's like a D Day situation or a Memorial Day or a Labor Day, I post something on Facebook, right? And he thanked me for showing him how it is okay to continue to memorialize your loved one and that grief does not end and so I didn't even realize that that's what I was doing with Papa right was even though he's not here I'm keeping his memory and his life and his story at the forefront of my own experience and that is something that our friend wants to do with his mother. And so it's impossible for me not to like recognize the importance of Dr. Shear saying like, you need to honor your family, your lost ones.
0: And maybe we could do better to encourage the grieving person to like touch on some of these healing milestones when they're ready. We shouldn't be too afraid to ask someone how they're doing. That they can tell us what like that we're willing to share their burden. Like we're here as kind of receptacles for their narratives. And
1: you know, you think about the times you have experienced loss and how you want to run away from it and how you're waiting for it to end. And the important thing is to know that it never ends, and that's okay. In fact, that's actually good.
0: And I like that she includes in the in the milestones and derailers. That like you're gonna do both. Yep. Like there's no such thing as like getting a perfect score in grief. Like part of grief is feeling feelings you don't want to have and experiencing thoughts that are not productive yeah. and are destructive. Your
1: feelings will only end when you end, and then that's your loved one's problem.
0: Uh, <laughs> now they'll, uh, yeah, that's so funny. Yeah,
1: I was holding on to that for a while.
0: <laughs> I don't even know what to say. But like what I was trying to say is that our problems will become easier when we learn to stop judging ourselves yeah. for not nailing mindfulness.
1: Yeah, um, mindfulness, but again, just the process of grieving. Or
0: the process of having emotions and doubts. And like, yeah. Like, we when we have a bad feeling or a bad thought, we are continuing our suffering by kicking ourselves for it. Yeah. Like, if we can just go, like, huh, like, have a bad that go, like, ah, oh, that, you know, weed that from my garden, don't need that one. And just moving on. Oh man, how easy would life be?
1: Well, life's never going to be easy, but just recognizing that it's not going to be easy and feeling terrible and feeling pain and feeling misery is all part of the process that will also bring you happiness and joy and all that good stuff.
0: So in short... Punch your shame in the groin! Yeah, go
1: superhero on it. And that's gonna do it for our Unite the Seven entry regarding Martian Manhunter. And remember, your trip with the Justice League does not end here. Next week, October 6th, the Short Box podcast will cover Green Lantern in their own unique way, and then the Unite the Seven podcast event will end on October thirteenth, with the Wednesday pollist covering the Dark Knight Batman.
0: Ooh, Batman! That's a guy who could use the healing milestones. Yeah.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. It would be interesting to see how many characters uh, throughout comic book land uh, would benefit from Doctor Shears' uh, milestones. Right. Uh, you know, grief is at the center of countless, countless superhero comics. But it's been an honor to add to the discussion surrounding the Justice League with these other podcasts, and I hope that we did them justice with this conversation, with this point of view of tackling Martian Manhunter's grief. I hope you new listeners, those of you who are joining Comic Book Couples Counseling for the first time, stick around and return to the show next week as we continue our conversation surrounding Black Canary, Dinah Lance, and Green Arrow, Oliver Queen. We've already done two episodes on those two, and we have two more to go. Next week, it's Kevin Smith's Quiver storyline. I think that's going to be a lot of fun and uh, quite different from the type of conversation that we had this week.
0: Knowing Kevin Smith, there's a double meaning in the word quiver and I'm (laughs) expecting this to be filthy. (laughs) Okay, Brad, uh, after this, do you want to take a little peek into my hermitage? Oh
1: boy, yes, of course.
0: No, it's gonna be great stuff in there. You sound very like discouraged at the thought of knowing my secret. I was
1: discouraged with your metaphor.
0: <laughs> okay, Brad. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
1: <laughs> you can send my words of your words. You can send your words of affirmation to me on all social medias at mouthdork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
0: I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes.
1: If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast, at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at cbccpodcast.
0: You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod.
1: So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full.
0: And your psychic rapport open.
1: That was a long one. Yeah. So
0: we're going to go with that outro?
1: I mean, I I don't want to redo it.